Hi there. In an earlier talk, I talked about what they mean by powerlessness in Alcoholics Anonymous. It occurs in step one, which says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And then there's a dash and it says our lives have become unmanageable. And this powerlessness that they talk about, as I said, appears to be a conclusion reached often after a long and destructive process of attempting to control their drinking. And finally, uh, with their failure of their best efforts to stay stopped. These best efforts often include such things as getting physically fit, going to therapy, uh, going to church, praying, and even going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. But when all of that seems to have failed, they then uh, seem to uh, describe that condition as we admitted, or we finally admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Uh, as a therapist, I was reluctant to use the term insanity to describe a sober alcoholic. It would appear that at that point, the man had, or woman had become quite so quite sane. But uh, I was wrestling with this and puzzled until I sat down one day with a man in Sacramento who'd been in recovery himself uh, for several decades and was at that time running Sacramento Recovery House, a recovery house for men who had reached a sad bottom in their lives. He it was who had pointed out many of the things that I had missed in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, such as the passage on page 35, uh, where it describes the mental state that precedes the relapse into drinking as being the crux of the problem. Uh, and I think I was still wrestling with that idea of the sober alcoholic being somehow then uh, insane. And uh, I sat down with him again to try to get a further understanding of the problem. As I mentioned, I'd been working with several people who had a problem with alcohol and who badly wanted to be sober but seemed to relapse every seven or eight months. So I took my question to him and when I said, what on earth happens to these people? They seem perfectly intelligent. They desperately want to stay stopped. And then something for almost no reason at all, they begin to drink again. And he looked at me quizzically and said, well, that's the insanity of alcoholism. And I said, I'm still not quite sure what you mean by that. I must have looked quite puzzled because he uh, sort of grinned and then he said, let me give you an example. He said, very recently, I was dealing with this young man, uh, res reasonably intelligent clergyman, who had been sober seven or eight months and desperately wanted to be sober. But then 
uh, one day uh, relapsed for no apparent reason. And I had a heck of a time, he said, persuading him uh, about the insanity of alcoholism. Uh, but he said, let me put the case to you. He has not had any alcohol or drugs for seven or eight months, and he gets in his car, and he drives about two miles to a liquor store. He goes into the liquor store, he buys a bottle, and he drives back two miles to the place he lives in. And through all of this, the two miles there, the liquor store transaction, and the two miles back, there is absolutely no alcohol or drugs in him. And then he goes into his room and he has himself a shot of whiskey. And then he comes in and he tells us all that he was fine until that chemical got into him. And I had great trouble persuading him that he was insane long before the chemical ever got to his mouth. He was insane, in fact, to some degree, getting in the car, going to the liquor store and coming back from it, and perhaps for days or weeks beforehand. And the insanity, this strange mental blank spot, he said, uh, seemed to have uh, taken over and everything he had learned about alcoholism and the effects of his return to drink seemed to have no bearing whatsoever uh, on his actions. So I asked him, I said, so how do you explain what was going on with him that had him get in his car uh, suddenly, completely sober, drive to a liquor store, uh, had some event, some trauma occurred in his life? And he said, nothing at all. It was a pretty good day. Uh, he said there was nothing that he could find uh, amiss, and it just somehow something came over him. And again, I said, uh, as a therapist, I said, that doesn't seem to be a very satisfactory explanation. And he said, I just want to ask you this. If this is insanity and you are trying to find a reason for insanity, uh, is not that insanity squared? And I had to admit that Yes, I had probably bought into the Hollywood model that everything that happens is explainable somehow in the backstory of um, the character uh, that will eventually explain his actions. The idea that somehow someone might have a strange mental blank spot in which they do something absolutely out of the blue that is self-destructive without any uh, animadversion at all to the consequences uh, was shocking. The question, of course, then comes up. If the sober alcoholic is so liable to a moment of insanity, um, it, what is his defense? And he said, well, that's exactly what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is for, and why simply a cognitive awareness and insights into one's emotional condition are seldom sufficient. 
I think it was then for the very first time that I had a true appreciation of the plight of the uh, alcoholic, even the sober alcoholic, and the need for a program that, as Alcoholics Anonymous says, is transformative in order to bring about a psychic change sufficient to recover from this addiction. As a psychotherapist, I was well aware of the fact that the concept of their life being unmanageable uh, had more to do with their condition prior to their addiction than it was to the chaos they created afterwards, although both were included in that second half of that first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. The uh, use of alcohol or other drugs to relieve stress, uh, to escape reality or whatever was the motive for beginning use, certainly uh, itself uh, was a state of unmanageability. People often come out of their uh, family of origin with uh, anxiety, depression, codependence, uh, all sorts of emotional stressors. When I finally came to consider the second step, which reads, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, I immediately began to recollect the plight of many people who felt that they were called upon to believe or nothing good could happen to them in terms of their recovery. And I found it important to try to understand what exactly Alcoholics Anonymous meant by the phrase came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The first part, came to believe, uh, I knew could not possibly mean that someone just on the spur of the moment could decide they were going to give themselves faith, that um, that was not something that theologically uh, was feasible, and many people had spent many decades in monasteries of all sorts praying for faith, so the idea that someone could just willy-nilly on the spur of the moment by an act of their own will decide that they now believed in God or some other deity just seemed not realistic at all. So I knew that that could not be what Alcoholics Anonymous meant by that uh, phrase, came, we came to, or came to believe. So I had to try to look a little further and see what it could possibly mean. After asking around some, I decided that the person who could perhaps enlighten me best might be someone who was still a professed agnostic, even though he had about 15 years active membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I asked him what exactly that meant to him. And he said, well, the first thing he said I had to consider was that in order to recover, I had to be rigorously honest. And he said, I could not possibly be rigorously honest and say that I believed in God when in fact I was 
using alcohol and drugs to cope with my life. He said it would be the equivalent of a clergyman going to his church and praying to God and coming back and using alcohol and that it was a bit like the Tylenol salesman who believed that Tylenol was a great product and sold it up and down the countryside, but when he himself got a headache, he used Advil or Bayer aspirin or something else. So uh, what did he actually believe in? So he said, I had to come to believe that perhaps I believed there was a God, but I had a problem in believing in God, though that might be what I would like to do. And so he gave me a more realistic approach to the problem. And he said that in many ways for him, the second step was more like a testimonial. We came to believe something would work. And we came to believe it not by the fact of going to my room and talking myself into something, which I would, of course, talk myself out of down the road a little bit, uh, but that I came to believe that something would work because other people had told me. And then I came across the story of the man who had a problem with his car. It happened to be a sob. And uh, he uh, always reports that back in the 1970s, if you had a sob, you had a sob story. So he says that uh, his next door neighbor uh, who moved in had an identical sob. And uh, he imagined that he had a fellow sufferer until he asked the man, uh, what happened to, uh, are we going to be able to do anything about our cars? And he said, oh, I found uh, a mechanic. He said, one of my students, uh, he was a college professor, uh, called him one day and said, uh, that he had taken his car to the Swedish mechanic uh, in uh, Sacramento and that the man had worked wonders on his car. And I said to my new neighbor, I said, what did you do? And he said, I took my car over to Sven also. And uh, I realized that that was uh, very equivalent to step two of Alcoholics Anonymous, that uh, this uh, man... I came to believe that a mechanic called Sven could fix his sob. Uh, he had not yet met Sven. He had not taken his car to Sven. The car was working no better for having heard about Sven. And in fact, uh, it kind of led into what step three of Alcoholics Anonymous is, which is he made a decision to do something. Uh, and in terms of the this the car, it would be the equivalent of the man, the car, the sob owner, deciding to take his car to this Swedish mechanic called Sven, whom he had come to believe could work on his car. So step three and step two turned out to be much simpler steps than I had first imagined, because when I read step two, I thought it was sort of a pseudo-religious kind of act where someone had to like you know describe a god in their head and come to believe in that god and suddenly you know by an act of their own will and then they had to make a decision to turn their will they had to turn their will in their lives over and then i, I 
read the black print and it said we made a decision to turn our will in our lives. So the decision to take the car to Sven or the decision to turn one's will in life over was actually only uh, the decision to do it. it. It had not actually done anything yet. So, so I began to understand that these first three steps, which sometimes people, I think, mistake for a sort of pseudo-religion, are actually very practical. They are uh, all of my own attempts to stay stopped have failed. My life is unmanageable and becoming more so every day. Uh, but I hear from other people that they have found a remedy for this condition, uh, some power greater than my willpower, which has been failing me. And the third step in sort of short form could probably be made a decision to do what th these people have done. And I think that once I began as a therapist to understand how logical and practical these steps were, uh, it cleared up a lot of my preconceptions that it was something akin to a religious faith that had to be involved for it to work. I want to, at this point, repeat my disclaimer, which is that this title of this piece is A Psychotherapist Looks at Alcoholics Anonymous and that in Alcoholics Anonymous um, there is no official interpretation, uh, there is no ex-cathedra proclamations about what is the right and what is the wrong uh, interpretations, and these are just my opinions as a psychotherapist. If your sponsor tells you something different, please defer to your sponsor.